Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 23. Now, uh, my guest for tonight and I have just been sitting talking about this for the last 10 minutes. I think it's 23. If it's not, you're probably not going to hear this bit and we're going to have changed it. Um, but yeah, welcome back again. Almost a year we've been doing this now. Today we have a very interesting guest, as is all of our guests, really. But uh, today we have James Herrick, if you want to say hello there, James. Hi, how are we doing, everybody? <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank you for coming on, James. Um Appreciate that. It's, it's taking a bit of time to arrange it just with uh, combining and stuff like that. Um, a thing I certainly don't have to deal with and haven't had to since I was down in Essex for a year or two. Um, but we'll get into all the sort of systems that James runs at home um, and also some other things. But just before um, we get into the interesting stuff, as we always do, uh, if you're listening on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, nope, Apple Podcasts, I think it is, whatever it is, uh, let me know, get in touch if you have any questions about the podcast that you want to change, things things you want to see happen, uh, different guests you want to see, all that sort of stuff. Or even if you think there's another podcast place you want to see the show on, which is mad because I think it's on 30-odd places at the minute, but <laughs> somehow there's still more places that need to be, need to be populated. Uh, so yeah, any questions, just get in touch with me on Facebook uh, at Rudel2Kitchen or Instagram. Um, and you'll sort of see what's going on. But enough of that nonsense uh, and, and get into the sort of fun story for today. Uh, James, what sort of background are you from? Are you from a farm? Are you from an uh, urban background? Just let us know a bit about that. <clears throat> um, yeah, so I'm, I'm from a family farm. Um, my family have farmed for quite a few generations now. Uh, they started on a rented farm and my granddad and great granddad actually bought where we are now, 1961. Um, it was a bit smaller then. I think they bought about 300 acres. We've now got about 450, uh, one way or another. Uh, it's about 50-50 grass and arable. And I've, yeah, I've grew up there, um, worked on the farm. You know, you know how it is when you're a kid, you're always outside, always farming, uh, doing a bit and the dog scratching at the door. Uh, <laughs> we do, yeah, we've always been outside farming and whatever else. Um, and when I finished my A-levels, I could have gone off to university. I decided that uh, I was going to just spend all my time probably drinking beer and playing rugby. And my mum would not have been happy about that. So I came back to the farm. I went off shearing sheep and God knows what else. But yeah, ultimately, I ended up back on the on the family farm then. And I've been there ever since. It's just me and my dad and my mum does the office work. So yeah. you, you see that? as if you would have been the only one drinking beer and playing rugby, as if that's not what everyone does when they go away to college. Oh, yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm really led. That's probably going to be my uh, trouble back, I, which is weird because I don't drink really now at all. So <laughs> I kind of looks like that, that's all gone, but I was awful back then. I, I ran on the stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm the same. I really drink. I do the old podcast here and there <laughs> with another guy, and, and I, it's maybe not quite as, tried to keep it as child-friendly as, as this one is. So we have a few beers on it, but I barely ever drink. It's just it's um, maybe at the Highland Show or something like that. But oh uh, yeah, oh yeah. I'm 24. And I can barely stomach a hangover anymore. So. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I, I'm awful. I'm awful. Uh, yeah, it's tough. It's uh, this. It's old age. is tough. Did you ever? Did you ever think to pursue the the, the sheep shearing? Yeah, well, I I, I sheared. Um, I started when I was about sort of 16. I went off wool wrapping for a contractor, and you know what? We got this like he ran three shearers and one of them was a kiwi guy an old boy called tom and he used to uh get to the end of his end of the run last sheep and he'd be like james james come on come on and he'd get there but like, what's up tom and he'd be like just finish this finish this sheep off and it'd just be the last leg and then next one it'd be like oh just do a bit more and it'd be from the last shoulder you do and then you end up doing the last side and from the long blows and whatever else um and yeah and then it, after a couple of years um of doing that yeah, actually, the contractor offered me a place on the on the stand. I was rubbish. I mean, I couldn't hold sheep barely. But I, uh, I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I just said I'll do it, and I'm the kind of person that if I if I say I'm going to do it, I'll do it. Um, and I went the first day. I shared 52, which was, and I, I honestly, I was in so much pain. Um, and then I went the next day and I shared 82, <laughs> and, uh, and then I didn't do a few days. I just kind of went when they got a lot of sheep. And when I went back, I, I thought, oh, this would be easy. And I completely forgot what I was doing. I haven't got a clue. It took me a, about eight or 10 days to do 100. And then by the end of that season, I was doing 150. And then, yeah, I 
did some second shear use later in the year, did 220 odd. And then, yeah, after a couple of years, went off to New Zealand, sheared in New Zealand, came back here, ran my own run for about five years until my granddad got ill and my dad was having to look after him. And I, I, that was at that point really was the turning point in which I had to sort of knock that on the head and come back to the farm. So I still do shear about three or 400 a year for the neighbor, but yeah, I just, I did, I did pursue it for a while, but yeah, moved away. For the, for those of you not for those of you listening who are not sure on a sheep or don't know what it entails, he says, "Oh yeah, I was doing two hundred and twenty a day," as if like that's just easy. Uh, I've shorn about I think it's seventeen in my life. Uh, <laughs> normally, just add one a year, you know. But <laughs> um, it is a tough gig, and folk that do it are, are are a different breed. So so fair play to you for it. But I guess that's a big thing that's happening at home, and it, it's time to sort. Of, come back and be the grown-up. Yeah, sort of you, you <laughs> um, it was, I was, I mean, I was running it from home. I was still at the farm and I was still at the farm most of the time, but um, dad just couldn't juggle it yeah. and be, and be doing everything. And I just had to say, well, it's time to, you know, to, to make that stand now and, and go back to the farm full time, uh, which was a shame. I mean, I, I earned more money when I was shearing sheep. That's for sure. Yes. Like, it was fun back then. You, you go and do two or 300 a day and seven days a week for a few months. It was quite, quite good, but. Yeah, it's uh, it's all gone now. All gone. <laughs> Very good. Um, who, who out of interest? You said it was 1961 that it was bought. So would that be your grandparents that bought the? Yeah, it was my yeah, I, my dad was born 65, so it was, it was okay. my granddad and his parents that bought the farm, um, and his wife at the time and, and his mum. And so like they uh, yeah they bought bought the farm. They were on a they rented on an estate. It was quite big farmers at the time. I think they actually became smaller farmers but to own a farm rather than rent one yeah. um they were on an estate called the lubberthorpe estate which is just outside of leicester um and the m1 got built and went straight through the middle of it and they put plans in to put the m69 coming straight through the other way and my granddad just went i've had enough of this we're gonna go and buy a farm um and that's what they did and it, in some ways it was the best thing they ever did because the lubberthorpe estate now is all going building the whole lot's been built on so there's, there's nothing going to be left in about another 10 years there'll be none of it left so well, i wouldn't have a farm if he hadn't have made that move by yeah. then. So, maybe, yeah. maybe a, a pretty big money maker i guess if the motorways are going through them. <laughs> oh yeah yeah oh yeah it's uh it's i mean it's a perfect place now for all the building that they do like industrial estates and everything but it's uh it's it's crazy before he died i took him for a ride through before they started building and the stories you get and all these you know he, he found at five or six different farms on the estate it was like he was always moving around on the estate but yeah it was amazing all the different stories he was telling you and uh, did i pick you up right you're at 450 acres roughly now and yeah. when it was originally bought it was about 300 have yeah. you been involved in any of that addition or is that mainly your dad fortunately not um <clears throat> we've there's been the odd chance of um buying a bit of ground by whilst i've been sort of uh, old enough to have any sort of influence but um the trouble around here is we are very urban we're like probably the complete opposite of where you are in scotland and we're yeah. extremely urban there is so much building money going around that as a farmer we don't where we are we we're never gonna get built up we're just like kind of in the wrong place but around here as a farmer if you've not got that building money you just get blown out you know you, you can't buy the ground and it's it's kind of frustrating because as a sort of bit of a smaller farmer, um, you start and think, well, how am I going to now progress my business so that I can potentially pass that on to my kids and they can pass it on to their kids if we're not going to be in a position to be able to buy a bit more ground. So it's, yeah, it's one of them. It's a bit up in the air, but you, you know, we'll work it out. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because we look at farming as, as a way, well, we don't look at it. Farming is the way to feed the, the growing population. But one thing I know I'm guilty of not considering is they also need to live somewhere. Uh, and so there's that sort of balance and both are just as important as each other, really. Um, but uh, you, you've got half half beef, is that right? Half beef and half arable, pretty much. Yeah, you yeah. We're, that? we're about, um, about, yeah, we've got about, I would say about 250 acres of grass and then the other <coughs> is of arable, but some of the grass is part of the arable rotation. So it's about 50. Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. Um, and a lot, a lot of the grass is meadowland. We have about 140 suckler cows and uh, we run a British Friesian cross with a British blue cow from, uh, we buy them in as calves. We buy them from a local dairy herd. 
they're really high health status. My dad spent years back in the 90s when I was a kid uh, really working hard on his health status. He worked with our local vets and developed the My Healthy Herd plan with them, um, which is now a national kind of herd health thing. Um, he helped, he was like him and Pete Orpin and um, I think it was Dick Sibley, or two best. They put that together and, and he was kind of the guinea pig for it. And that's took off and he's really worked hard on that. So we, we buy our calves from this dairy herd because we know that they are absolutely top notch on their health and we're not going to be bringing anything onto our farm. Um, we buy them in as calves, we rear them on because we want that specific cow. We can't really find them elsewhere. And then we cross our blue cows to a Charolais, which we buy on EBVs, which is, I don't know if you know about that, but that's estimated yeah, yeah. breeding values. Um, we buy all of them based on that. Uh, we put the bulls in for 12 weeks and they're out. We don't, we carve in the spring, we block carve for 12 weeks and that's, that's it done. Um, and then we have all the young stock, uh, they come in and we have in the past sold them as stores. We're actually now thinking of finishing uh, some of our cattle, which is actually what I was doing today, I was mixing some finishing rations. But um, we were, yeah, we're thinking of going down the finishing route, something that we used to do years ago, we used to finish bull beef. Um, but it was, yeah, we, my dad moved away from that for when he was trying to tighten the um, herd health up. And it's now we've kind of got where we want to be. We sort of thinking about going back down that route again. Um, and then on the arable side, we grow a rotation of um, winter wheat, sp spring or winter barley, spring beans and spring oats. And then we also have herbal lays within the um, arable rotation, which will leave for three or four years. And they'll help sort of um, put the soil into good condition. And, you know, we'll do it then three or four years of arable and then back to a herbal lay again. Um, and yeah, we grow all of our crops, essentially. We do sell off some surplus, but a lot of it is grown uh, just to feed to the, uh, the cattle. So we sort of try and keep all of that as self-contained as possible and don't buy in any feeds that are soya or anything like that that's bought in from abroad. Yeah, so try and keep it like sort of a, a sort of cyclical system type thing as much as possible. And... Yeah, exactly. And just try yeah. and keep it as, as, as close as we can. I mean, I'm uh we we try and practice as much as we can we try and practice regenerative agriculture and that's kind of the route we want to go down and but it's one of those things you can't you can't turn it on overnight you kind of have yeah. to you, you have to filter into it um and that, yeah that's the, that's the route we're kind of going down with it so we try as much as possible to Im implicate those things uh and implicate those practices as we go along and uh yeah and it's, it's interesting because for me with the whole regenerative thing i um I'd kind of lost my way a little bit with agriculture three or four years ago. I'd kind of, I was a bit fed up with the whole spray it with chemicals, go in there with the plow, go in there with the subsoiler and batter it down. We're on really heavy ground and it takes a lot of working down when it's, um, when it's not the most ideal conditions and you're just in there, batter it down, rolling it and disking it and God knows. And it just kind of felt a bit, I don't know, something just felt a bit amiss with it. And then um, started reading up about, regenerative agriculture and I don't know it just lit a bit of a spark in me and I kind of found my love for farming again if you know what I mean it was I kind of lost my way and I'd come back to it so it, it's it's so diverse and so interesting that I just um yeah I, I really really enjoy I enjoy talking about it but I just enjoy doing it and seeing the process it's it's, it's really interesting it's a there's been a lot said there and I've written down about six things to talk about but um regenerative agriculture is is in some ways a simple term but also it's not really it's not it's not the same as sustainable agriculture and the best description i heard was on a podcast elsewhere actually i think it was the farm advisory podcast and robert ramsey had said a sustainable relationship is coming home every night making dinner going to bed happy a regenerative relationship would be coming home with flowers and chocolates and keeping the romance going and i thought you know what right. that is excellent but uh, yeah, yeah, uh, good stuff. What what out of interest is involved in that vet plan? Do you know, um, <clears throat> it's a lot of it's just uh, having a a plan for you for the year, essentially. So you've got you know you know you set your goals. It's like any kind of training plan or anything. You, you set your goals and how you're going to work towards it, and then you you have your measuring tools of whatever it is you're trying to trying to achieve and then at the end of the year you review it 
and and set your next goal again. So, but it's um yeah, it's it's really good a good thing. I mean, you can log into it online, but I I wouldn't know the pod, uh, the password <laughs> without looking in the little book. But yeah, yeah no, it's, good. It, it's good to have. Like we all sort of do event plans. Some of us do uh, deep event plans where we go to the vet and go through everything, not sort of thing. Some of us sort of have a chat at the road end of the vet, you know, and it's really good to see that recorded uh, sort of form um, yeah, yeah. to see how it works. Uh, for, th- for those of you listening, guys, I know some of you listening because, and it was why I started actually, you're, you're interested in farming, you're interested in what's out there and what, what happens. Uh, James mentioned EBVs there and that stands for estimated breeding values. And what you can sort of see from them is, for example, the calving ease uh, that a, a sort of a top brings to the mix, the, the, uh, uh, like the, the daily live weight gain they bring the um, yeah there's also yeah there's, I, I've, I've, I've went blind could you tell us a bit of what you're looking for so for us when we're picking bulls um, the reason why we use a Charolais more than anything um, they're, they're a lovely temperament to work with we, we used to run limousines and my god then things will kill you as soon as look at you just the best thing we ever did was getting rid of those things um, but yeah we, the reason we moved to the Charolais was because the society as a whole have a really good EBV um, sort of system. That everyone seems to be doing it. And you have, hello, Barley, the dog just done it. Um, <laughs> Named after the crop on the farm. Yeah, yeah. And you, you, they, yeah, it works really, really well. And you can kind of go to a sale and you can see everything. Um, I don't really ever go to a sale and just stand there and go like, oh, I like that one. I'll buy that. That, that never really happens. I, I'll get the catalogue and I'll go through and I'll, for, for us personally, because we're looking for a, an animal to grow um, to fatten, uh, we're looking for, as, as well as because we're trying to carve the cow, we're looking for a high carving ease. We don't want uh, something that's going to cost us a lot of money in cesareans or something we're going to have to help. Um, we generally want to so want generally a good carving ease. We want a good growth rate. So we want that calf to carve easy and the calf to grow as fastly as possible. And we look for other things like a terminal index, we want a high terminal index and a high ribeye um, muscle area. Because oh, that, those kind of things all indicate a better carcass killing out weight. And also look at things like scrotal size because of the direct correlation between scrotal size and fertility. So we, we try and cover as many bases as possible. There's other things on there like um, things like a cow's milk um, yield and things like a carving ease for the daughters and they're kind of things that I would necessarily discard because for me they're yeah, not they I'm interested yeah. um, but what it generally ends up happening is we'll have we've got one uh, bull that's plus 27 on his carving ease he's the most um, the year that he was born he was the best carving ease uh, bull but he also has really good growth rates and you'd look at him and you'd think you're a madman to put that on some heifers on special my blue heifers that are only about 450 kilos yeah. You think you're an absolute madman, but they will spit those cards out. You will never, you will never be helping them. It's amazing the system, um, how it works. And generally now, having done that, we only really tend to get carving issues that are the cow's fault. We never get a bull carving. We never get like a big calf that we can't get out. It's either there's a narrow pelvis or there's some sort of something wrong with the cow. It's never seems to be the bull, which and it's it's incredible that difference that has made to us. It's it's phenomenal actually. I mean, obviously, for those of you listening again, it's you're looking for a small calf that has a high, quick live weight gain. So easy out, not going to damage the cow, not going to damage the calf, and then and reaching those weights that you're aiming for. You mentioned plus twenty seven, and I'll be honest, I have a a, a base knowledge of EBVs. But what is zero, and and how does plus work? You know, how do these numbers actually mean? What do they indicate? Um, so I mean, they're all they're all slightly different depending on what you are yeah. measuring, but. For carnies, for example, zero would be your breed average and minus of zero would be worse than your breed average and obviously plus of zero would be better. Generally, if it's a plus, if it's anything more than 10, you're like, wow, okay, yeah. that's that's pretty good. Um, he was, like I say, plus 27. He was absolutely amazing. And they do change over time um, because they're, how they work is, a lot of it is it's veterinary measurements and it's also um down to the farmer that you're buying off the breeder to record things like their weight gain and stuff like that and it it works on back on the genetic profile going backwards as well um 
and it all goes into the system. And the more you put in, essentially, the more you get out. And then each um, each single thing has an accuracy mark. And what I tend to look for is more than 50% accurate. You're never going to be 100% because no. it's until the day that that animal dies, you don't know what it's going to produce. But if it's more than 50% accurate, you're generally going to find that it's pretty pretty much there. So, Yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, a lot of people that are, uh, are, are involved in animals, be that uh, pets or livestock, I've heard of pedigrees. EBVs are almost like the the opposite of pedigrees. So pedigrees are taking the information from uh, aunties, grands, mums and dads. EBVs are taking the information from the offspring, seeing how that's working. And uh, it's, it's a really interesting, a really interesting thing that I don't know enough about. And I keep trying to learn it. And then I'm like, I get confused with the numbers and then I try again. But it's, uh, it's, it's interesting stuff. You mentioned um, you're mainly aiming for store uh, market at the minute, but looking to move into finishing. What, yeah, what's made that decision? come about um really actually a lot of that has been come about with the ebvs because as we've we started off with just one ball and we sort of went down that line and we were comparing um the calves from that ball to the other calves and, and so on and so forth and as we now got to the stage where all our balls we uh our charolais and they're all got you know we're, we're sort of eight or ten years down the line from doing this we now realized when we come to selling in the market for example as stores or selling direct that our stores tend to not actually be that popular in some way they're very they are very, they always make good money but they're not that popular because they're almost too big because of how well they grow um so it's, we generally sell them out at 12 months old as people are trying to buy them and turn them out but they're almost too big to turn out because yeah. they're, they're at 500 kilos at 12 months old and we've not pushed them at all and not really had any uh, any big cereal ration or anything like that have just generally been on a bit of silage and people are like well if i put this out it's gonna fall back and melt but i don't want to be turning it into a cattle yard and feeding it because that's not what i'm about and yeah so we were like well we don't we generally try to have the yards all empty for the summer so because there's only me and dad outside we don't want to be uh rushing around doing harvest and having to feed cows in yards so the idea was that if we can um have those cattle finished now at 14 months old which should be easy for us uh with, with what calves we're producing then we won't have that problem anymore whereas when we used to finish bull beef they were in the yards all the time it, was, it just drove you mad <laughs> constantly going waiting for you waiting for you um you said barley beans did you say peas did i, I, I no, no. Barley, beans oats we don't grow we don't tend to grow peas for ourselves because we, we've not got the lightest of ground and we've got quite a lot yeah. of big stones and i don't like I would put a new concave in my combine if I can help it. <laughs> exactly, it's just more work. Um, it's just out of interest. Have you ever have you ever grown rape or should rape or? Yeah, we used to. Yeah. Uh, we used to grow as part of our rotation, and we up to about three, four years ago, um, and we got on really, really well with it. We grew fantastic crops of rape. We generally didn't grow it too much because we had a wide rotation. And a lot of the yep. problem with that was just when it was wheat, wheat, rape uh, rotation. Um, but yeah, we had a wide rotation, got on really, really well with it. And then uh, we started to suffer a lot with the, the flea beetle. Yeah. And last time we grew it, we grew uh, 50 acres out the back of the yard. It's in a, we had one 20 acre field was perfect, yielded about 2.2 tons to the acre. Really, really, no, really happy with it. Another one did about one and a half. You're like, okay. And then the other field, we had to top half of it because no. flea beetle had just destroyed it. And, it was getting worse and people were talking about it and it was in the press and we were like, you know what? We're not, we're not arable farmers solely. We've got other yep. things to worry about. And I'm not, I can't be there just looking at the rape every day, hoping that I'll find a flea beetle and go in and do something. And really, if I, I don't want to be spraying pesticides all the time anyway, and insecticides. So it, it, it was like, well, I can think better of this. You know, I, I, I can do something else and, you know, we'll grow in, we'll grow that out growing that rape and selling it out and yeah. buying back in uh, other protein sources. And you're like, well, we might as well be growing our own protein source and something like beans, relatively easy to grow. You're not using artificial fertilizers. You don't have to really spray them that much and they put your soil in really good condition. So it just seemed like a bit of a no brainer really. Yeah. It, I mean, kind of known as a bit of a, a break, crop, break crop at breaking point these days. I mean, establishment's almost impossible because of the, yeah, yeah. The trouble with rape, you spend so much money on it 
mm. before Christmas. And you could get after Christmas and still have to still have to get rid of it. And you're just like, well, I, I, I'm not really interested in spending all that money just to throw it down the drain. So, yeah. I yeah, mean, I think when you, sorry, I think when you see companies like KWS there offering like offers such as like you pay half now and half when you harvest, like that's or half when you establish. I think you yeah. know there's an issue. You know they don't just do that. <laughs> yeah, I had my agronomist round uh, last week, and we're just chatting a bit just talking me through different things we we're talking about rotation and whatever and he said um oh yeah neighbors he does the agronomist on on agronomy on a couple of neighbors he went oh um got big out two big arrow farming neighbors he went they're putting rape in next year and the others are putting rape in next year he says so you won't want to grow rape around here for a good four or five years because there'll just be flea beetle everywhere <laughs> i was like that's not really helping anything is it no it's not it's not at all um sorry it's still good over that first thing you mentioned i've just got loads of things right there uh you mentioned herbal lays. Now, people are probably thinking, what is that? Uh, so what is that? <laughs> um, well, we, we used to grow just a grass lay. So we used to grow uh, what's called a Westerwald, which produces tons of grass, lots and lots of grass, but it's not the best quality of grass. And it only lasts really one year. You might get a second year out of it if it's good. We moved to herbal lays, and what they are is essentially a, a diverse mixture of different grasses, herbs, forbs, legumes, and um, I think there's about 17 or 18 in the mixture that I use. And there'll be things like chicory, different um, grass species, so things like timothy and rib grass, um, plantains, all sorts of different bits and pieces, lots of clover, white clovers, red clovers. And the reason why we've moved towards them is that we get a, we don't get quite so much silage from them, but we get a higher quality of silage. So when we come to feeding in the winter, we don't have to feed as much of it because it's of a better quality so really if you work it out if you do all the maths you end up about the same if that makes sense you have less silage but you have more quality you don't have to feed it so much you end up about the same amount in in a you know kilos per day or whatever you want have you want to work it out the amount of days worth of silage is about the same um and one reason why we went to them is i've actually started to put them in on um on our grass late on our sorry on our permanent pastures as well um, because they have a lot of different depths of rooting, whereas something like a Westerwell grass only roots real shallow, a couple of inches. Um, those herbal lays with things like the chicory in there and the plantains, they'll get down five, six, seven feet uh, with a root, and they'll be drawing off moisture. And it's actually, um, you can tell now if you went to the farm, we've had a really dry spell apart from the last week or so. It's been bone dry for months, and the only thing that is growing is the herbal lay you know that's as green as grass but the actual grass is that's gone a bit dead a bit yellow and we're actually bringing some cows in tomorrow we bought a few in but we bring some more cows in tomorrow because we've not got enough grass now to keep keep going but this time of year on a normal year if it was raining uh, a bit more often you grow loads of grass in september um so those herbal lays are really helping us out and because they have a different root structure and there's a lot of diverse roots in there essentially there'll be some sort of root in every foot down to that seven feet, you're going to be building topsoil. You're going to be improving your water infiltration. You're going to be making the soil more friable. Um, things like the clover will be adding a lot of natural fertility in there. So you're not having to use so much artificial fertilizer. Um, and generally, like I say, you, your grass is going to be a, of a better protein when you come to feed it to your cattle. So they're going to do better as well. That rooting is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's yeah. unbelievable. The, the depth. And you'll think, you'll look at it and you think, because I looked at our herbal lady the other day and I thought, well, there's a lot of plantain in there. And um, I think I looked on Cotswold Seed. They have a great um, thing on their website where you can put in and it'll show you the roots and it shows you the depths. And I was like, oh, I see why the plantain's growing so much because the roots are just enormous. So yeah, it's, it's really impressive the different things that you can do with it. It would be interesting, you mentioned there's chicory in there. It'd be interesting uh, to see a batch of your cattle on the silage from these herbal lays or direct yeah. from the herbal lays, whatever, against just normal grass, Westerwald sort of mix, that sort of thing. Yeah, would, and, yeah. and I, mean, I've got, I have got some Westerwald still because we, we kind of still growing in a little bit just as we transition, yeah. putting more in. Um, so, yeah, it would be interesting to give that a go, actually. 
And, and it would be interesting with a focus on worming issues because chicory axe is a natural anthelmintic, doesn't it? So Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, that would be really interesting, yeah. Um, so we've, we've thrown around uh, regenerative a few times uh, here, uh, James, and one thing that's in the news a lot, we've got COP26 coming to Scotland. Uh, you know, the environment is, is very much in vogue, if you will, and it should be. Um, it's the first time it really has been, and it's it's good. Um, and we hear the word carbon all the time, and I'm pretty sure you're doing, maybe you're not doing audits, but you're certainly looking forward to that. What, what do you think that means for farming? Um, yeah, I mean, capturing carbon, I mean, carbon's essentially the thing that makes all life work. Everything is made of carbon, you know, no matter what it is, your computer, you, the ground, every plant you eat, everything, it's all made of carbon, ultimately. And if you can take as much of that carbon, we've produced tons of the stuff over the last 100 years, and we've made a right mess of the place. And if we can take some of that and, and as farmers, and sequester it into our soils, um, not only are we improving our soils, because having that carbon improves the natural fertility of your soils and, and the microorganisms that work within it, and the way that they relate to passing nutrients through the rhizosphere into the root of the plant and make the plant more healthy. Um, we, we've just, I think it's just something that we need to be a lot more aware of. We, we, as there's a lot of farmers around here who we direct drill. And there's a lot of farmers around here who will say to me, what do you do that for? And I'm like, because that plow that you're using, you know, once or twice every year is the worst thing that you could ever be doing for your carbon source you are just throwing it out the window you're really really bad you're not going to be able to sequester as much carbon as you're chucking out in that plow and i tried to explain to them you know the half the trouble i think with it is that a lot of farmers are, are old farmers yeah. we have an older uh, older generation of, of people working in agriculture and yes yeah, some of them are pretty clued up and some of them have the right sort of attitude to it but i one of my neighbors is like 85 still works on the farm all day and loves the plow his plow is his favorite thing that he's got and he just doesn't understand even though i'll say to him let me come and drill 10 acres just let me have a go and i'll show you and he's like i said i won't charge it i'll just come and he's like no i'm gonna plow it and he's like it's not gonna help us it's really <laughs> not helping um but yeah building up that carbon sink in your soil it's, it's so important because every as a plant grows you know you photosynthesize it pulls in carbon and that's another reason, really, why we want to, the herbal lays are so important. They, they grow so much with those deep roots. They're always growing. They're pulling in carbon all the time, putting it into the soil. And yeah, it's going to be going to be good for us, essentially. And um, I think we need to get a bit more clued up with it. And um, I think it's interesting. A lot of this people starting to talk about selling carbon credits and, and that kind of thing. I think that's quite interesting. I don't really know enough about that yet to actually get my head around it, but. I think it, it's something that having that monetary thing that we can, as farmers, sell, especially as it's not so easy now to make a living out of agriculture, I think that might help people steer in the right direction because they think, well, there's a bit of money here. I can, you know, you're almost bribing them to do it. But if it's getting done, it's getting done. And that's that's what we need to think about. I, th I think the, the, the carbon credit and carbon currency, I mean, it, you could almost see it as a cryptocurrency, mm. but there is still a tangible thing there in the practice but I think it's dangerous in that big companies I'm not going to see a company because I can't yeah. think of what does this not not that I'm scared to see a company I just no, don't no, want no. to do this they have a huge carbon footprint right so they go and buy a thousand hectares of woodland up in Scotland yeah from this person nothing has got better you just yeah. look better and I think that's that's the problem. Money can make you can manipulate how well you look with money, um, which is a worry. Yeah, yeah, I, that always that always bothers me a little bit because when it's you know you get the you see it all the time, don't you? These um, well, it doesn't matter what it is, where it's like vegan propaganda, you get a lot of it, or you get it on the news where it's it's very simple to say, oh, agriculture that's bad, cows fart and that's bad, and it, it's very very simple to say that, and people go, oh. Yeah, I suppose they do fart, and yeah, I suppose that is bad. So I can get my head around that. But if you try to say, "Oh well, no," because that cow's actually grazing on this herbal lay, and 
actually it's it's not being fed this thing and actually yeah. we're not plowing up the soil to do this and whatever people are like what and, and how do you explain it it's so difficult to get anybody to to understand things like that it's such a long-winded thing i try to talk to my neighbors about it and i think they get fed <laughs> up with me uh <laughs> they get fed up with me talking about it because yeah but it, it is difficult it's so it's so much easier to say cow parts and that's bad stop eating meat and it's so easy it's so easy to say that yeah, I've I've got into that battle on many an occasion, but maybe this isn't the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you just tell us a bit about the differences and processes between direct drilling and a process in which we're ploughing, we're secondary cultivating, and we're drilling? Yeah. So um, if we start with you know a, a general cultivation, um, you can do. You've got sort of three different. You've got your full tillage, so your full inversion like ploughing. You've got your min till and you've got your direct drilling. Um, with your ploughing, you'll go in there, you'll turn the soil over completely. And people do like it because they tend to say, oh, you get a fresh start. A lot of the commercial arable farmers will do it because you get um, a clean seed bed. They kind of say, oh, well, we're burying the weeds. We're having a clean start. And although that kind of makes sense, in theory, it doesn't actually work because you a lot of the seeds will stay dormant. You just keep turning them back. And it's also the still there. It's never been there, sense yeah. Um, it doesn't really work that way well and um yeah people will people will do that and they'll, they'll drill into it and they'll go in with a power harrow or some discs or whatever to work it down get it into a nice fine tilth and then they'll they'll go and drill it roll it and, and go from there with min till you've got people who and which is what we used to do we used to subsoil everything we used to disc it roll it um go in there and with a combi drill we'd combi drill it and then we'd go in and roll it again and get away with it is a, essentially a bit less um a bit less use of fuel in that there's still a lot of time a lot of wear and tear on machinery and a lot of kit you need and then you go we move to direct drilling and essentially the difference with the direct drilling is that you are you're not touching that soil so you're not releasing the carbon out of it by going in there and plowing it um obviously your plowing is your worst your min till is better than plowing but yeah you direct drilling you're not going to release your carbon um, you do have to farm it slightly differently. You have to think differently um, when you're direct drilling. But in simple terms, you just go in with your tractor and your drill. You don't need any more equipment. You'll drill your seed straight into what was last year's harvested stubble. And hopefully, if everything goes well and your soil's in the right condition because you've worked on it, your plant will grow and you won't see any different to the guys with the plow. So. It's Joe. I've actually got one question because I don't have a clue the answer is to this. If you've say you've had rape in one year and yeah. you go to direct drill wheat the next year, it's quite a substantial stubble. Do you have to go and sort of get rid of that rape stubble by topping it, or what? How does that um, work? It depends. It depends a bit. A bit. I mean, like for myself, I always tend to combine it quite short because. Okay. Yeah. I'm like I'm conscious that that's something that I want to do. I mean, some farmers, especially arable farmers, will just take the top off because they they're all interested in the seed they're not bothered about the straw especially on something like rape because they can't generally sell it they're not that yeah. bothered about it um but the thing is especially with something like rape as well they're generally chopping the straw and it's it's very good straw for essentially your soil it's good it's got a good carbon nitrogen ratio it's good for putting back into your soil it helps your soil you know regenerate itself and gets a lot of the microorganisms working so really it's something Personally, I try and cut it off quite short and then would put it out the back. Same when I'm doing beans, I chop the bean straw, same same reason, really. cut it off short and and do it. So yeah, I suppose, I don't think really it would matter too much. I mean, one of the principles of regenerative agriculture is to keep the soil covered and protected. So really, if it's if it's a bit long, it's not going to hurt. As long as it's not affecting your drill working, it, should, it shouldn't really matter. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, affecting of the drill working was kind of, what I was wondering if it did, but um, when, I, when I originally got in touch with you, uh, James, you just gave me a bit of a over sort of <laughs> overview of the farm, that sort of thing. Um, you mentioned cover crops. Could you tell us a bit yeah. about that? What they are? Um, so a cover crop, a cover crop is essentially a non-profitable crop that you're growing in between two cash crops, two crops that you're growing for profit. Um, and the idea of a cover crop is that you are growing, you don't have to grow multi-species in there. You can grow just one species. But the idea is that it's you're, you're improving your soil, 
especially if you're on a direct drilling system, because it, it does a lot of the, the roots will do a lot of the work for you um, as opposed to putting a tine down it or a plow. Um, it's capturing carbon. So it's sinking carbon into your soil. If you've got the right plants in there, something uh, like legumes plants or even certain clovers that will grow fast. Um, you can put nitrogen in soil, which again is available for the next crop when you come to drill that. And you can do a lot of things with them. So you can graze them and you can run some sheep over there or some cattle if it's dry enough and graze them off during the winter and, and integrate some livestock onto your ground. So you're almost making use of something that wouldn't otherwise be used because if you were waiting to drill a spring crop, they'd just be sat there anyway. So it's just, um, and having a living root in your soil is going to improve your soil faster. So if you are not leaving that field dormant for that period of time, essentially that you're going to improve your soil. So you're just trying to utilize your acreage essentially as much as possible. Um, and you can do so many things with the cover crop, depending on what really you're trying to achieve. So if you've got a compaction issue, you can grow some really deep tap roots in there that are going to break through pans. If you want to fix some nitrogen, you can grow stuff like mustard and clover that are going to put a lot of nitrogen into the soil that you can then utilize for your next crop and reduce your artificial use. Um, you can, try and build biomass if you need to put some um, bulk back into your soil and, and get some organic matter into the soil. So some stuff like mustard, again, you get a lot of bulk with that and you can, and, or forage rye. So it's, it, it really does depend on what you're trying to achieve. But as a general rule, it's just trying to keep something growing in your soil as much as possible. And then if you can utilize it to do something else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, James, I mentioned compaction a few times, just, just so you know what that means, when, when we're running anything over the ground, imagine you mashing tatties. That's essentially what's happening when you're compacting the ground. I've got some rubbish analogies. I'm a lecturer, so I have to come up with stuff to stand up. Um, so every time you take a tractor over a field, you are letting carbon go because you're pushing that ground down, which is forcing it out. So just, just in case you're wondering what we're talking about there. Um, I could sit and talk about the farm all day. I'm having so much fun. Like it's it's so it's it's not surreal to me because I know a lot of the stuff, but yeah, yeah. I haven't spoke to many folk that are doing it. Um it's it's a bit harder in some ways to do some of the stuff you're doing up here purely because we're yeah, not doing exactly. Adam where we are, you know, that sort of thing. Um but the reason I originally got in touch with James at first was I saw his name pop up on an Instagram post or a Facebook post or something uh, through the Farmers Weekly. And uh, he was talking about discrimination in farming. And it was more mainly aimed at homophobia. Uh, from what I understand, that was certainly the one the one I read. Could you just tell us a bit about that then? Yeah, so I, I write articles um, for the Farmers Weekly. I'm one of their uh, writers. I write about every four or five weeks in there. And that that particular article you're referring to uh, was the discrimination article I wrote. Um, essentially, I'd I'd seen online uh, they did the they were doing the gay pride massive Ferguson oh, yeah. design, and they were running the competition. They were trying to get kids involved, and you know just to colour in the tractor, and then the winning design got picked and put on the massive Ferguson. I thought it was a great idea. I'm like, yeah, that's, that seems really cool. And I just happened to notice on one of these. Um, posts on Facebook that he got like 300 comments and I'm like seems a lot of comments I'll just click on there and see what's going on and just that I mean there was there was a, some comments on there were you know your normal comments but there was so much abuse and and stuff aimed towards gay people and you're just I, I kind of read it and I was like this this something really amiss here and people would almost they were joking about it they were they were using that as as a way of you know having to go at people or and there were some people i mean some people on there the stuff that they wrote I mean, they should be ashamed of themselves it was disgraceful and um i i'd spoken i know a couple of gay farmers and gay machinery reps and things like that and i'd, I'd spoken to kate my fiance about it and i was like i'm i can't believe these people are putting this on here it's, it's, it's so bad and uh yeah i just I was really it got my back up really really bad and then they put another one on another post on and so the people started at it again it hadn't got quite so many got like 70 and I was like comments and I thought god this is really this is not right something needs to say it be said um and it just happened to be the week that I was tipped to write an article and I was like you know what I'm just going to go in on this I'm just 
I'm going to say it. And we were always, when we first got um, into the job of writing the articles, they said to us, you know what, you can write what you want. Be careful of aiming stuff at a particular manufacturer yeah. because you can, you can end up in court, but you can essentially write whatever you want. And I thought, well, I'm going to go for this then. I'm just going to, I'm going to tell everyone how it is. And yeah, I, I just couldn't believe that in modern day agriculture that we had so many people who were willing to beat down on someone just because of a, something so simple as a sexual preference or, and you know, it's, and it's not just confined to that. There's racism and, and so on and so forth. And it, I just felt it was something that needed to be brought up. Um, yeah. So I, I wrote my article. It got quite a big response, actually, that one in particular. Positive response, I assume. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Positive response. Yeah, it was. I mean, there was a few people on there who were trying to say that there wasn't a problem, and I'm like, well, always there is. There is a problem. We we can yeah. see this. I you know I'm, I didn't write it for the sake of provoking <laughs> provoking people. It was I was trying to highlight this issue. Um, but yeah, it, it it was a general positive response. I got a lot of people were, were thankful. I got phone calls from people that were saying, you know, I'm glad that you wrote that especially coming from a straight man i think yeah. that's the thing that people were saying to me if you get a gay person who's complaining about it it doesn't have that same effect because they, okay, I get that. Yeah. if you know what i mean that's what they were that's what they were saying to me whereas when you're a straight man who's say highlighting this issue they were saying well that that really rings some bells for people because they're like wait a minute you know he's not saying that it's against him he's he's seen this from the other side yeah, and do you know, uh, when I had an interview for my job, I'm a lecturer at Scotland Rural College, um, there was a question, uh, <laughs> how do you, how would you go about promoting diversity? And I went in a rant, and I was probably lucky I got the job after the rant I went on, because I said, I, I don't care what colour your skin is, I don't care who you want to have sex with, and that comment in itself is not something many people say in, a, in an interview, but it, it, it's so true. It blows my mind that this is a thing. I mean, I've, you might have heard of, might have heard of him, uh, Flavian Obiero. Every time yeah, we've yeah. great guy. Um, right, yeah, he is. He's a wicked guy. Absolute legend. I've honestly classed him as a close mate. I've never met him, uh, <laughs> but um, he's talked about casual, casual racism in farming. Yeah, and like we've all, we've all got mates. Yeah, we all take the piss out of our mates and stuff like that, and that's fine for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, I was always the chubby one. You know, there was always stuff yeah, like yeah. whatever. Exactly. I was um, always I had no hair. Yeah, well, exactly. We all have something, and that's like that's your close friends. That's fine. You don't care. It's good fun. But this whole stuff on Facebook, writing you whatever, you this, and I'm like, what are you doing that makes you think this is what I want to do with my minute at the minute? Yeah, you know, I don't get it. Whole keyboard warrior thing, and you know what? The I knew full well that. 99% of those people wouldn't have said a thing to them in their face. 100%. And, yep. it, and it just drives you mad because you just think, well, why are you doing this? Because it's not just that. As well, it's you've got to think about the people that are reading it. There might be people who are reading those comments who are gay people who haven't come out, who are haven't come to terms with it or whatever, don't feel socially accepted, and it could it could lead to something absolutely tragic because of what you said, and you, whether you were having a bad day or whatever doesn't matter. You shouldn't be saying it, and it, that was what really I just I just needed to get it out there. That it, it's just not okay. And like you saying about Flavian, racism the same. I mean, he he he's in a, a unique position because obviously he's a, a Kenyan guy, a black guy. And he's working in an industry that is generally white male and from years gone by, you know, it's very ancestral kind of industry. It's always been passed on. So he, you know, he's again, he, he's getting it because, because of what he is and he, he shouldn't be. He's an incredible pig farmer, absolutely yeah. incredible pig farmer. He knows more about pigs than I'm ever going to know about pigs. And that's, that should be what he's celebrated for. It shouldn't be, oh, well, he's a black guy. It should be, or a gay guy or whatever. It should be well. They're amazing at their job. Yeah, that, that's what he said. He was like, "I'm always Flavian, the black farmer," and I'm like, "I'm Flavian, the pig farmer." And exactly. it, it, it's so true. And and the, the thing is, if I was to count on one hand, we've kind of moved on to the 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 um, race side of things here. But let's yeah, let's talk about it in general. If I, I could count on one hand the amount I of farmers I know that are not white, let's say not white, 
let's not specifically say black, because I know of three people, yeah, yeah. two people are black and one person from Asia, right? Um, that in itself, people could listen to that and say, well, that's not our fault. But if you really look into it and look at those comments on Facebook, you're saying someone who's not came out, they're listening to this. Maybe there's someone out there, a 16, 17-year-old, uh, male, female, straight, uh, sorry, let's say gay, uh, not white, whatever, wanting to get into farming, and they see that and they're like, no, nah, fuck that, I don't want to be part of that. I do not want to be part of that. Um, We're farmers. I'm a farmer <laughs> because I love farming. I'm not a farmer because I'm a white man. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. That, that's, that's fundamentally it. These people should be, should be bought into the industry because... They want to be, we're missing so many people. We're driving so much, so many people away. Yep. We could have, could be the best people we've ever had. They could be the next Bill Gates. We could do yep. something incredible that could revolutionize agriculture. Or, but we're driving away because they're, they're black or they're gay or whatever. It's, it's wrong. We shouldn't be doing it. It's, it's totally wrong. And I did, I did a master's in, in food security in 2019. And uh, we talk about biodiversity all the time. Um, but agriculture does not have a human diversity and it's 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 as you're saying it's missing it i mean the things i gained from my chinese pals that year my french pals my canadian pals my nigerian friends like you you, you just gain so much from hearing different things from people from different backgrounds from people from everything and it, it, it's it's sad that we have to have these discussions actually yeah um, it is yeah but Okay, here we are, and let's hope let's hope these discussions there's someone there's someone out there that same person I'm talking about that 15 16 year old who wants to get into farming and they're listening to us and thinking now nah, let's side with these guys as opposed to side yeah, with these exactly. people. That, no, they're they're like, just writing things. If if you're gay or black or whatever, if you're being discriminated against, I'll I'll give you a go. If you want to come yeah. and have a go, have a go. I'm not going to discriminate against you because of no. what you're if you want to do it, yeah. you want to do it. Does it just does it matter? No. <laughs> But yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more. And and I think you mentioned in that article that the sort of women in agriculture is 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 a thing now. It's big. It's a shame women in agriculture has to be a thing. It should just be. That's how it is. Yeah, it should. It should. I mean, and the thing is, is really generation generationally. If you go back, there's been a lot of women in agriculture. My grandma used to go and do stuff on the farm. She didn't. She wasn't resigned to the house because yes. you know whatever. So. It's been a it's been a thing, and they've done women in agriculture. It's been an amazing movement, and there is so yes. many incredible women in agriculture. And but like you say, it shouldn't be a thing as such. Yeah. It's amazing that it is, and it's amazing what they've achieved. But we should just be accepting that yeah. they want to do it and allowing them to do it, and not putting barriers in the way. And it's it's such a a, a male privilege thing to think that women are less important in farming because there's more female farmers out there than there is male i think it's like 65 35 really? women yeah, yeah yeah because in in a lot of places like africa and stuff like that it's, it's like the lowest yeah sorry i mean globally yeah yeah, yeah. yeah no if i said nationally apologies uh, i meant globally. No, you didn't know maybe um, yeah just jump to that uh, but yeah it's it, yeah oh we could sit here and get angry it's good that we've <laughs> talked about it um and it is good to talk about it. And there's one one other article you're obviously writing a lot. If, by the way, if you're listening, um, go check out James's social media on YouTube. Is it Baldy Farmer? Baldy Farm. Baldy Farm. Baldy Farm. Yeah. Uh, and then Instagram is on live on Baldy Farm. So check those out. And also, if you want to see more of what he's doing, you will have to pay for the subscription if you if you read any more than two articles. But if you type in James Herrick. Farmers Weekly, there's loads of them. It's just a full page. But one other one I wanted to talk about was, I can't remember the exact title, but it was along this sort of narrative of take time off and don't be scared yeah. to do that. Yeah, It's such a peer pressure thing in farming. Oh, I sat oh, the pub, God, I did 17 I, hours. One of my favourite <laughs> things, like I said about the comments, one of my favourite things to do is, I'm not, I don't care what people think of me, I really don't. But one of my favourite things to do is to read the comments on my articles. Because generally... 90% of the people who comment on there haven't actually read it. They just read the title and they yes. go off on one. Um, but yeah, having time off, it, it's it's something that I didn't used to do. I didn't used to. I used to go like Young Farmers AGM and potentially skiing. And that was it. You know, I didn't have time off. Um, you just keep going. And it, it wears you down. And I've, 
as we've got older, you realise how important it is to, to have time. Obviously, I, I'm engaged to Kate and we've got the dog and we go away and we'll have a weekend or whatever. Mum and dad have got caravans, so we just nip off in the caravan. And you just, you're not doing anything particularly, but just having that time away from the farm, just to have a moment to breathe and to think about something different. Honestly, I get so much more work done from not being beaten down all the time and tired. It's, it's unbelievable that how much more efficient you can be and how much clearer you are and how much better your business direction even is. But people people are just like, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be leaving the farm. You shouldn't go, I don't go on holiday. Why should you go on holiday? You know, and again, you really asking about it, but it's just, it, it's, it is ridiculous. It's, it's funny, I always remember speaking to a guy on Aaron, um, we basically have one family that sheared all the sheep uh, um, and the older brother, really nice guy, got on great with both of them, they're, they're really good family friends but he he mentions at this time when they were in the pub and they were having a chat and he was with someone else that was a farmer in the island and he was like, oh, you know, I did 90 hours this week and 90 hours last week and there was this German in there and he goes, why are you proud of that? <laughs> <laughs> I work I work 16 hours a week and make the same money as you. <laughs> I was like, that's, yes, that's a privileged thing for sure. If you can get into that position, yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's the, 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 what's the word? The, the sort of premise, I guess, rings true. Yeah. Uh, it's not a brag to say that you don't rest. You know? to my dad about it just after I wrote the article, because generally, um, I generally don't tell them what I'm my parents what I'm going to write. I just write it, and then I'm like, "You'll see it in the Farmers Weekly." I just let them. I don't because then they can ask a question. That because generally they'll try and ask questions before, and I'm like, "If you just wait and read the article, you'll you'll know." Um, I talked to my dad about it, and he was saying, "We just we turn up in the morning, we have our time when we start, we start, we work, and yet like we we stop for breakfast, we start early, we stop for breakfast, we like to get all our livestock done." before breakfast then we stop and we eat we go out we work till lunch we go out after lunch we work we go home there's none of this like oh we'll go in for a coffee we'll have a sit down whatever and, and try okay. to take yeah. in the middle of the day we when we're at work we work and yeah. we work hard and but that's fine because i come home and i've got you know like i say i'm i've got kate here i want to spend time with kate we don't work together so we're not spending time we don't i don't live on the farm i live about a mile away so we're not on the farm together i want to spend time with her i want to spend time with the dog i want to be able to still go running and swimming and out on the bike and all my all my triathlon training that i do and all that sort of stuff and still want to go off i like to cook i like to bake and i still want to be able to do all of those things so i like to just go to work have my time do my job come home and and have and make those delineations i think it's really important i think i'm a better person for it for for actually spending that time and being like i'm going to be organized and i'm going to do it it's made me a better person it's made everything everything a lot more organized and every, everyone seems a lot happier with it yeah yeah I couldn't, I couldn't agree more it's funny it's funny seeing the students you know there's agricultural students that are anywhere from 16 to 20 roughly and it's just oh i do why didn't you work Saturday? Why did Why didn't you work the whole weekend? Yeah. <laughs> just, it's not that. Impressive. I get it sometimes when I go up to the the agricultural engineer in the village. I went up there last week to get some oil pipe fittings, and uh, one of the lads in the workshop went, "Oh, I'm surprised you're here. You're always usually off walking up some mountain or something." And I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, but got, my job still got done. Don't worry about it. You know, <laughs> this is the corn yeah, shed. What the cows are all fed? What's your problem?" <laughs> exactly like what more are you going to do like do the job and enjoy the rest of the day jeez um yeah no some really good points and you know we've went over some really interesting stuff there jen it's been good to talk about the regenerative side um as a as an aspiring farming youtuber i'm guessing you've heard of the funky farmer maybe maybe i have not. only a little bit i've not actually i've i've uh done a little bit but not yeah not a lot well he he was he's kind of known from what i understand is like the the <laughs> Sorry, Richard, if you're listening, the grandfather of farming YouTube in, in the UK. He, he started it back in 2008 or something like that. Like YouTube oh, yeah, like before the internet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't. Th I'm pretty sure he must have been putting it in the post box. I think I was well, a 3310 back then. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Snake 247. <laughs> um, but I had him on, and uh, he he was talking about um, biodiversity and some of these terrible ways and stuff like that. And and it's not something I'll be honest. 
we consider often enough and it's really interesting to, to talk about it so so thanks for that um but if you've been listening uh, you will know there's two questions i ask everyone at the end of it if you haven't listened to the end you will not know what they are but that's fine um the two questions is one where do you see yourself in five years and two and you'll be a really good one for this given we've just been talking about this uh, if you had tips for anyone coming into the industry what would they be so in five years' time, wow, um, I'll be married. That's for one. Uh, Let's hope. Yeah, yeah, because so, <laughs> next year. So <laughs> next year, um, excellent, excellent. So yeah, I, I mean, like from a personal point of view, um, yeah. Actually, I'm going to break it up into tell me personal. I'm going to business because, like we were just talking about, we've got two sides to life. So on a business venture, um, I like to. I'd like to try and sell more stuff direct to consumer. That's something I've, I've quite like to do some, some way I'm, I'm trying to go. Um, I'm hoping to streamline the business a lot more. I'm trying to go down the line of um, cutting out a lot of kit that we don't need, trying to make use of the stuff that we do have because everything's so expensive. And I just hope that uh, as a general rule, I really just want to see my farm thrive. I'd like to leave it in a better position for the next generation than what I've yeah. found. And so for me, as long as, the the processes of of improving my farm whether it's from like i say from a machinery point of view an economics point of view from the land from structure whatever as long as i am improving it and i'm putting in that time and that effort and that that is i'd be really happy from that whatever happens after that great you know that's fine um on a personal point i mean personally i like i say i I'll be married. I'd love to have some kids. And uh, I'm hoping that I'll be in the GB triathlon team by then. <laughs> but Excellent. that's a long way <laughs> is, is that an honest goal? Yeah. Is that- yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'd like to, to think so. I mean, I'm, I'm not the fastest in the world at, at all at the minute. But um, as I get older, we have age groups. So I'd like to get into the age groups. And I'd like to run a sub three hour marathon. That's something else I'd like to do. By Excellent. Uh, what, what, just, just out of interest, what is the the average age of a triathlete at the Olympics? I, I don't know. In the Olympics, I mean, the Olympics, they'd be younger than me. They'd be in their sort of mid-20s. Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, some of those guys, like Alex, it's right, the Brownlee brothers are a bit Brownlee older course. than me, I think. I think they're about right. 31 or two. But, um, yeah, mid-20s-ish for those guys. I mean, those guys are quick, though. They are insanely yeah. quick, those pros, yeah. I mean, like, what I'm talking about isn't pro level. I'm talking about, like, the amateur level of GB. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> Still, though, that's amazing, though. Yeah, God, I can really get the fridge in time. Um... <laughs> uh, yeah, and, well, sorry, what was your other question? Uh, blank. other one was, um, if you need any tips for folk coming into the industry. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, yeah, if you come into the industry with anything um just stick at it there's gonna be times when it's hard and if the one thing i've learned even from like just training and, and everything there's times when you get knocked back and you've just got to get up and keep going it will happen it might take a while but it will happen just don't get discouraged by it if you're if you feel like you're something's against you you know what just try and turn it make it use it to your advantage use don't be scared of using things like social media. Like Wallace reached out to me to try and reach out to other people and get yourself some experience, get out on the farm and travel. If you can see other parts of the world, you'd be amazed at what you can learn from just going, even a sheep farm here is not the same as a sheep farm in New Zealand. hundred percent. What I learned in New Zealand was unbelievable. Go and have a look, you know, go to America, go to Australia, go to Asia. If you can do it, just put yourself out there and it, it will work. You will honestly, it will, it will all come together. You've just got to really just nail it and keep going arrow straight. That's, that's the, yeah, way. I couldn't agree more. And, and yes, arrow straight sort of concentration wise, but if you have to go in a, a slightly yeah. different path, it really does not matter. Exactly. Um, the, the travel one's really interesting. Um, I've, I've essentially been in a relationship for the last 10 years uh, it's with three different people, but maybe like two months of that last 10 years, I've, I've not been in the relationship and I haven't taken the, the time to go and see other places and I'm genuinely looking at it now like it's there's so much out there but the reason I'm saying this is you mentioned so many different countries on, on uh, you know sheep, sheep farm here is different to sheep farm in New Zealand one tip I would give as someone who hasn't done all that stuff is my sheep farm in Shiskin which is the village I'm from 
is different to the other sheep farm in Chiskin. So yeah. get experience on other places, try new places that the manager you're with might be really annoying. Uh, yeah, just try new things, and and I would I would I would back everything you yeah, said. Yeah, you'd be but, amazed what you yeah. can learn. I mean, <coughs> when I used to go out shearing, I'd go out on a I'd go out and shear one guy's sheep. He got about three thousand sheep. We used to go and shear, um, and we had sheep at that point. And just the stuff I I come back and I'm like. Why have we not done it like this before? <laughs> why have we been struggling? What I've just been to Garfields and I've just learned all this. Like, why, yeah. why are we doing it this way? You know, it's amazing. Yeah. What you learn. Just get yourself out there. It, it will all help you out. It will help you out. And there's some amazing people. You'll discover them. You'll find some idiots. Ignore them. Just go, and then just go off somewhere else. You'll, there's some amazing people out there if you're just willing to look. Yeah. And do you know what? Even the idiots, you'll learn something from them, even yeah. if it's not to be that way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming on, James. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, uh, uh, not at all. It's been great, great chat. And, and uh, if you've been listening in uh, and we're, you're still here, um, really hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, and we'll see you in a fortnight's time. See you later on, guys. Cheers, guys. <laughs>